Amen. Amen. You can take your seats. I'm back with our scripture for today, which comes from the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And you can follow along in your Bible or on the screens to my left and right. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Amen. Good morning, everybody. My name is Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here at Renaissance. Hey, anybody hyped to go see Black Panther this week? Anybody want to see that? <laughs> I got my dashiki on deck. I'm ready to, to hit the theater. Uh, but the rule is, you cannot go see the bootleg version of Black Panther. If you do, you will lose your black card. Um, for my white and Asian friends, you will lose your advocacy card if you go see Black Panther on bootleg. Uh, bootlegs have come a long way, though, if I'm keeping it all the way live. Uh, in the 90s, uh, whenever uh, you had a bootleg movie, uh, it wasn't a digital copy. This was actually before the internet even had speeds that you can transfer songs or movies. Uh, it was some dude that would go to the movies with like a trench coat and a camcorder. And he would sit there and record the movie, and it was always a terrible experience. Uh, there would be people standing up in front of you. You would hear laughter. Uh, the worst part about a bootleg is the audio was terrible. Like, there would be entire sections of the movie that you just couldn't understand or, or, or make out. And here's the problem with a bootleg movie. Uh, you could watch a, a movie that probably would have been dope had you spent the $13 in the movie theater, but because of the version that you got, you really didn't enjoy it. A lot of people, when they describe their faith, uh, in some ways, it sounds like a, a bootleg version of Christianity. And when I think about their faith and what they are experiencing in terms of the joy they have out of it or uh, how life-giving it is, oftentimes the version that we have is not what the executive producer God had intended for us to have. Now, here's one of my pet peeves in life. One of my pet peeves in life is when there's something that's good and someone dismisses it and they didn't even have the real thing, or they didn't have the real version of it. Uh, a couple years ago, I was on a, a trip, a missions trip in Guatemala, and I was with people from all over the country, 
And there was this one guy, uh, as we were riding in the vans uh, from city to city, he was from like Milwaukee or, or somewhere in the, in the Midwest, and he said, you know what, I go to New York a couple times a year, and the food and the coffee is not really that good. I was like, dag, bro, that's kind of, you know what I'm saying, that's kind of disrespectful just to say that the food and the, the coffee in all of New York City is not good. I'm like, where were you staying? His answer, Times Square. He was staying in Times Square, and he went to a Starbucks on 40 Deuce, and from that concluded <laughs> that the food and the coffee culture in New York City is not good. Now, there are some really good accusations that you can say about New York City. The, the price of rent for your 19th floor walk-up, yes, that's not good. <laughs> Someone blasting reggaeton outside of your window at 3 in the morning. Again, I'm not for that. I mean, Why? The rats. I mean, seriously, there's like a, a quadrillion rats in New York City. There are things about New York City that are not great, but you cannot give a fair and objective assessment of the food and coffee culture of New York City based on your time in Times Square, New York. Some people, for, for some of you guys who are back to church a, for the first time in a long time today, or all of us have friends and family members, they may be dismissing Christianity in the same way that guy was dismissing New York City food and, and, and coffee. They're operating on a version that is so mediocre that at best, yes, there's similarities to it, but you cannot call Times Square food real New York City food. Now, the scripture that I want to look at today is not a bootleg version of Christianity. It is the high-definition version in the movie theater with the 5.1 Dolby surround sound system that gives us a great uh, view into what God would actually have us to understand about the nature of our faith. And here's why this is so important. At the end of the day, when you lay on your deathbed and say goodbye to your family members and friends, the type of faith that I hope that you had that carried you through the years was one that gave you life, one that was filled with joy, not the bootleg version of Christianity that's just adding more and more lists of things that you need to do. And this scripture today is, uh, as we're continuing in our series on Ephesians, is one of the clearest uh, passages of scripture that basically outlays for us what our faith is all about and is meant to bring us back to uh, a really good understanding of what uh, God has for us. Now, if you're a Christian and you have family members and coworkers and friends who you would like to talk to about your faith and how it differs from just uh, another list of things to do and another way to uh, um, try to make God happy with you, uh, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is a great scripture for you to read and to reread and to understand and to Google commentaries and to try to understand the nature of this because packed in these short 10 verses is a really good description of what our faith is all about. Um, and it starts off in verses 1 uh, through 3. Uh, it starts off, it says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously lived, according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. Now, bootleg Christianity says that Jesus is a great addition to your life, that uh, there are things that you need. You need a job. You need health care. You need relationships. You need all these different things in your life. And yes, you should add Jesus to that mix. It would be a nice, well-rounded life to add it to it. But Scripture doesn't give us that version of what faith and life is all about. It says, you and I used to be dead, and now God makes us alive. Now, 
really quick note, note um, when the scripture says that you are, you're dead in sin and I'm dead in sin, it's not a, a comment about your activity, but rather about your status. So this is not saying that you are as bad of a person as you uh, possibly can be, but rather that uh, talks about basically what we need is beyond any one of us. So when Scripture says that we were dead in sin, it's not saying that you're the worst possible person on the planet, that you're a Patriots fan. It's not saying that. It's saying, <laughs> it's saying that what we need is beyond any one of us. If you're dead, what you need is life. Now, it's very interesting, um, as the scripture starts, it talks about being dead in sin versus other analogies that the author could have drawn from in order to make the point. And it's very interesting that he didn't say you were sick in sin, that there was something that afflicted you. Um, If you're sick, what do you do? You go on WebMD and you're convinced that you're dying, first step. (laughs) Then, after you've gone on WebMD and you have convinced yourself that you have come down with a rare brain tumor uh, that's causing these headaches... Um, you then, you might call a doctor, right? And then you call a doctor and you find out which doctor takes your insurance. And then from there, you call a doctor or you make an appointment, you go, you sit down, you get some sort of prescription or you get some sort of advice. Then you go to Dwayne Reed and you fill the prescription, you come home, take the medicine and you feel better in three to seven days. Now, what's the common thread in all of this with sickness? You knew you were sick, you go to the doctor, you went, to the, you went to the pharmacy, you took the pills, you stayed on top of the regimen, and you felt, you felt better. When Scripture says that we're dead in sin, it's saying that we don't need Dr. God. We need Savior God. We need the Resurrector. We don't need a doctor. The common theme of uh, bootleg Christianity is that you can do all these different things to improve your life. Well, here's Paul, what Paul is saying. He's saying, we were dead in sins. And we don't need improvement. We don't need advice. We don't need any of these things. We need life. We need the giver of life to breathe into us. Now, here's why this is so important. This is why this is so critical. Because when you understand the concept of grace and a gift, if Christianity is just another thing that you can take it or leave it, it will not produce any awe inside of your life. What the author is meaning to intend to, uh, to, to convey to us is that, yes, this is a gift, but this is a type of gift that uh, is, is absolutely indispensable in our lives, that there is no such thing as spiritual life, spiritual vitality outside of this gift. Now, how would you define grace? Um, it's pretty difficult to define grace without, the def- without including the word gift as uh, uh, one of the words to describe it. But most of us, all of us, have received gifts in our life that didn't change us, they didn't challenge us. They didn't produce any awe in our lives, mainly because we didn't need them. If you were to go to Madison Square Garden on Chris Stapp's Porzingis bobblehead night, and for the first 2,000 fans, they give out a bobblehead, if you take it home um, and put it on your coffee table, that gift, although it is free, is not going to change you. It's not expensive. It's not costly. And you don't need it. If anything, it's just going to make you depressed that you have some Nick's paraphernalia in your house. When Scripture talks about the gift of salvation, it's, not, it's talking about something that is absolutely indispensable. It's talking about something that is absolutely costly, and it's expensive. And that's meant to produce awe in your life and gratitude. If you're thinking that Jesus just gave me a boost when all I needed was like, you know, I just needed a hand, someone to kind of give me a, a little bit of a, of a boost in life, then it's not going to be any awe and gratitude in your life because you're still going to be thinking that you got yourself 75% of the way. You're going to wake up on third and think that you hit a triple. 
Christianity says that you woke up on home and Jesus hit a home run for you, and you somehow people are celebrating you, putting you on their shoulders, and you had nothing to do with it. It is life that has been given to people who are dead. Now, a faith without that awe and that gratitude is not one that can carry you through the different seasons in life and the different disappointments that you may face along the way, along the journey. And this is why I think that Paul starts the argument here, talking, trying to produce awe inside of our hearts and our minds before we get to anything else. Now, uh, a couple of days ago, my wife and I uh, got a chance to speak um, at a conference to tell our story of how we met. I've told her a thousand times, the sad part at least. Um, she uh, lost her late husband in a motorcycle accident. I lost my late wife to cancer, and uh, we met each other, and she saw me. She couldn't get a nut. No. Is that what happened? That's, that's not what happened. Don't look to her after for her reaction. Um, but she and I could have been having an argument about uh, any one of a thousand things. I didn't do the dishes. She won't let me buy the Jordan 3s that are coming out on this week. You can talk to her about that. That would actually be very helpful. <laughs> after service. <laughs> Regardless of all of the thousands of things that could have made us frustrated or irritated with each other, uh, I sat in the green room and I listened to her tell our story. And I was thinking about the thousands of things that had to go right in order for us to be together. And right there in that room, awe hit me. God, are you kidding me? For all of these things that have taken place for me and her to be together, and the fact that she actually liked me is even another thing altogether in and of itself, and awe hit me, and gratitude hit me, and regardless of the little arguments that we were having, none of them mattered. If there is no awe in your life, you will spend your days frustrated about the minutia of the details that didn't happen and what we need, maybe not every single moment of every day, but we need moments where awe returns to our lives. So scripture tells us, first thing, that what we need from God and, and what, what true faith is all about is trusting that God did what we could never have done. True faith, not the bootleg version, that God did something for you that you could have never done on your own. God gave you life when you were dead, and that's meant to produce awe inside of us. Second thing we see in scripture in this one that is uh, something that I used to uh, say I understood in my mind, but I was so far from this, and it's, it comes to us later in the chapter, verses 4 through 9. Um, true faith is not just that God did what we could have never done, but it means that true faith means that we could never add anything to what God has done for us. What credit can a dead person take for coming to life? How much credit can you take? There's a dead person who get, did Lazarus when Jesus raised from the dead say, yep, Jesus rose me because he liked my, he liked my outfit. He liked the way that I was laying there all stiff. <laughs> There's no credit the dead person can take for coming to life. And here's, this is what will get you so messed up every single day of your life. You will be trying to add something to the grace of God. And the second you try to add something to the grace of God, you lose grace. You lose the fact that it's a gift. And once you lose grace, you lose sight of Jesus. So Paul says this point over and over again, and I'm going to read it from verses 4 through 9. He says, but God, who is what? Rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavens in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. 
For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift. Again, not from works, so that no one can boast. Now, the reason that you and I need to understand what grace is, because grace doesn't just get you into the door of being a Christian. Grace carries you every single day of your life. God's sustaining grace, that every single day walks with you and assures you that he is yours and you are his. God's redeeming grace, which every single day gives you brand new mercies in order to follow him. God's assuring grace that he will never leave you and never forsake you. God's grace is the beginning, the middle, and the end of the story. And Paul says it over and over again. It's not even his best writing. He just says it over and over again to make his point. This is not from yourself. Think about all of your works. Think about your wokeness. Think about your your theological understanding. Think about your great holiness. Think about your private time and how, how much you read the Bible. Think about whatever you can do to try to add to it. And Scripture says, this is not from yourself so that no one, no one, not Mother Teresa, not Paul, no one can boast. Paul has a, a section of Scripture in Philippians when he talks about his pedigree and how diligent he was uh, in trying to follow God with every fiber in his body. He talks about his education, his background, his moral purity. He says all of that added up to dung. He would have, uh, all of it added up to absolutely nothing. If you lose sight of grace, you lose sight of Jesus. Bootleg Christianity will have you always beating yourself up because here's the standard. If what you have to do is to earn your relationship with God, to add, to prove to God that you're worthy of his love, then tell me a day, tell me an hour where you could not have done better. Pick a day last week that you could not have done better. There will always be a higher standard. And here's what scripture is trying to free us, free us from. You and I cannot add anything to it. The system of grace is a much different operating system altogether. Uh, There's a scripture in Matthew 20 where Jesus tells a parable where he describes what the kingdom of God is like. And sometimes people are saying, well, that's Paul. Maybe Jesus doesn't, uh, you know, agree with that. Maybe God wants me to to work a little bit for it. Uh, Jesus tells one of the most offensive parables in, in the entire New Testament. And he's surrounded by religious leaders, men who were convinced that the way you earn God's love was by doing good things. And that if you did good, God gave you good. So Jesus tells this parable and he says... For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. So the landowner goes out and hires a group of people at six in the morning to come and and work in the field. Later, the scripture says, he goes out again at nine in the morning and he gets another batch of workers to come in and work. He does the same thing at noon and gets another group of people to work for him in the vineyard. Then again at 3 p.m., gets more workers and they start working Then the last time, he does it again at 5 p.m., and everybody works for uh, all four, the same landowner among each other. At the end of the day, the landowner says, hey, foreman, line everybody up, and we're going to pay everybody. First, he lines up the people who got got there at 5 p.m., and the the people who got there at 6 in the morning are looking around to see how much they're going to get. They see they get a denarius, which is the equivalent of a day's wage. And they're sitting back like, yes, if they got a denarius and they got here at 5 we about to get paid. The foreman walks down the line, and every single person gets the exact same thing. They're like, ho, 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 bro, bro, bro. Son, I left the party early last night to get here in the morning. 
These dudes are watching Netflix all day, and they get here at 5 p.m., and they get paid the same thing that I do? If you're operating on a system of merit, it will always make you angry at grace. Jesus tells the... <laughs> That's my... They, yeah, they, they Baptist, y'all. They... they I need, I need that every now and then. Here's what the landowner asked them the question. He says, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Are you angry that I'm gracious and I don't operate in a system of merit? If the way the kingdom of heaven operated was based on a system of merit, then those who work more get paid more. Those who work less get paid less. One of the best and clearest examples, I mean, the ones who, get, who work less uh, get paid the same thing in the operating system of grace. One of the best descriptions of what Jesus is talking about happened on the last moments of his life where he hung on a cross and out from among him were his disciples, but also among his disciples was another thief, was a thief that was hanging on the cross. And the thief, there was two thieves on the cross and, and one thief was joking and ridiculing Jesus. The other one says, man, this guy hasn't done anything wrong. Jesus, would you please remember me when you go into your kingdom? Jesus looks at this man and says, today you will be with me in paradise forever. This man and Mother Teresa have the exact same outcome. Even though she has spent decades and decades of her life serving among the most marginalized, her outcome and this thief's outcome are the exact same. You want to know why? It is not a system of merit. This is not based on yourself. It is a gift of God. If you lose sight of that, you will lose sight of Jesus all together. We need to be reassured day by day that the way that God operates is not based on merit, but he is based on grace. And when God decides to pour his grace out on you, to be in a relationship with God means that you cannot add one single thing to it. You know what that does? It frees you to not have to be perfect. So all my perfectionists out here, the days that you haven't done everything that you wanted to do, and then you run away and hide like Adam and Eve did in the garden when they didn't get everything right, when they sinned and fell, listen, God gives grace, much more than you and I could ever think or imagine uh, about it, but this is the way that he operates. Now, the third thing that we see in the scripture is a beautiful truth, is uh, the true faith is believing and knowing that God's grace doesn't leave us alone. So God's grace does for us what we can never do for ourselves. Uh, we can never add anything to God's grace. But equally importantly, his grace doesn't leave us alone. God's grace does not stay as theological concepts in your head, but it actually makes its way into the interworkings of our life, our emotions, and our spiritual, every single decision that we make, and it doesn't leave us alone. Uh, I've heard a, a great quote from a theologian that says, we are saved by grace alone, but not a grace that leaves us alone. One of the more interesting things that we've seen in this last year or cha in change has been uh, the, the rise of American Christianity and seeing how backwards it is in, in many ways that people have these claims of Jesus in their head and they don't actually live out anything that they say they believe. So on one hand, they say they support morality and they believe in morality, but they vote for immorality. You want to know what that is? That's cultural Christianity. Cultural Christianity, I heard a great definition of it, is someone who has laid religion onto a life that they've already chosen. 
But a disciple is someone who has reoriented their life around the presence and the authority of Jesus. We are saved by grace alone, but not a grace that leaves us alone. And it's not just laying religion and laying theological concepts on top of our life, but it's a grace that gets into us and compels us and draws us and makes us and molds us and challenges us and moves us around so that we can be what God has intended for us to be. So scripture tells us in verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. We, you and I, are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. In the mess of our lives, we are reassured that you are God's workmanship. You are God's investment. You are God's, as one scripture says, his masterpiece. And a masterpiece doesn't happen overnight. See, one of the things that I've noticed about American Christianity, uh, ever since the Industrial Revolution, America has been obsessed with efficiency. How do we make a radiator as fast as possible, as cheap as possible, as reproducible as possible? And we let that bleed into our spiritual lives that what God is trying to create in us is to put us on an assembly line and to stamp out different spiritual gifts inside of us or different spiritual characteristics inside of us. But what God is after in your life is not efficiency. It's beauty. And the process of God's workmanship for beauty, creating a beauty and a masterpiece is much different than an assembly line. And we're reminded in Scripture that what God is after in your life is to be his workmanship. Now, I'm an attorney by trade, so I have very little personal experience on how to create an artistic masterpiece. Uh, but I went, to, uh, I went online and asked some friends on Twitter who are artists, hey, what is the artistic process actually about? Like, what, what does it actually entail? And the first thing that they talked about was it starts with a relationship where the artist looks out at what he's, he or she is going to create, and they have a vision for not just what they see right then in front of them, but what and how beautiful this thing could become. Erica Badu, Badu probably says it best. Uh, I'll give the G-rated version. She said, hey, keep in mind that I'm an artist, and I'm sensitive about my stuff. <laughs> the artist is not detached from their art. The artist has an investment and care for their art. So when, God, when Scripture calls us God's work, workmanship, God's masterpiece, it's saying that God has an investment in your life. God sees you exactly as you are now and also dreams about what you can become, and God takes it personally. He takes your life personally. You're not some widget on an assembly line. You are his masterpiece that he's staring at and committed to and is going to produce for the world. The second step is work where the artist not just dreams about what he, can, he or she can do with a piece of work uh, or with a piece of a material for art, but rather they work it over and over again. They mold it. They shape it. They craft it. They cut stuff away. They add stuff to it. They bend it. They, they put it in the oven. Piece after piece, they labor over this piece of art. Now, here's why this is so important. If you try to hold on to control in your spiritual journey you will lose sight of the masterpiece that God is trying to create with your life. What do I mean by control? If you want to know why everything has to happen in order for you to do it, you're, not, you're going to miss out on what God is trying to create in your life. There's a scripture in Isaiah 45 where it says, does the clay say to the potter, what are you making? There's something about all of our lives in terms of any artistic process that if you stopped it in the middle, you would have absolutely no idea what the artist was trying to do. But let it go on for the full way. 
Give an artist who's a genius at creating beautiful work, let them have the full runway to create a piece of art and then judge it at the end of time. Don't judge. Do not judge anything prematurely. Whatever discomforts or, or challenges you might be having in your life, maybe God is using this to create something beautiful in your life. But we have to give God space to work on our lives. And listen, there's a prayer that we've uh, talked about from stage a number of times. It's when Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, he included this line, your will be done. It's four words, but it's terrifying every single time I pray it. God, listen, I have a will, and I'm going to lay it down so that your will could be done in my life. And here's, why I'm, here's the only reason I can say that. I have to trust that I'm your workmanship, and whatever you are trying to bring about in my life is not just for pain's sake, but it's to create beauty with my life. You're trying to do something inside of me that I could never do for myself. After the artist works on her project, it's finished. And here's the part that messed me up when I was thinking about it. When an artist creates and finishes a product, they don't just put it on for sale, but they first sit and they admire it. They first they sit and they look at the beauty that they've just created before they ever release it to the world. And here's what this means. To be in Christ means that all things are new and that when God looks at you, he rejoices over you. God doesn't look at you and say, man, I just wish, you know, I wish they would get it together. It means that God, as God's workmanship, God is proud of you and God is proud of what you're becoming. I know it's messy. I know the, pro- I know the road is not always the easy- easiest and the straightest, but it looks like uh, from scripture that God looks at us with adoration and God enjoys the finished product of what he is trying to create in your life. What God is trying to do with your life is something that he, could be, that he would look at and adore. And when God looks at you, God rejoices over you. And after the artist en- enjoys their work for himself or herself, they release it to the world. And this is where this is so important. 99% of you should never, ever, ever think about getting into ministry. That is something for some people, um, but it is absolutely not the call for every people, even for most people. What God wants for you in your life is not necessarily to have a microphone in your hand and stand on the stage, but God has prepared good works for you and with your people at your job, with your family, with your talents, with your skills, with your education, God has work for you to do. God is creating, uh, doing things in your life so that you could be released to the world and you could be God's agent to inspire beauty in other people. There's a scripture in Matthew where Jesus talks to his disciples. He says, hey, you're the light of the world, you. You're the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light so shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. God has a vision for you and your life, a specific vision. It might not be the most comfortable road possible, But I think that we would do ourselves a a major disservice to think that what God has reserved for you uh, involves working at a church or something like that, but doesn't involve the every single day interactions in your life. And I think we miss out on a lot of opportunities to be used by God because we don't think that God can use us. We don't think that God can do anything special with our lives. We don't think that God is doing anything with our lives. But Scripture assures us you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good things, which he has prepared in advance for you to do. Your and my response should be to wake up in the morning and say, God, what is it that you have prepared for me to do? What is it that you have prepared for me to do? And then to pray for the courage and the boldness to go out and do it. Let me pray for us.
Heavenly Father, I thank you that we are your workmanship. And God, you don't give up on us because the first draft is, is rough. Uh, but God, you have a plan in mind of exactly what we are and exactly what we can be. So Father, I pray that we would have the courage and the boldness to, uh, to pray that prayer. God, what would you have us to do? And God, that we would have the courage and the boldness to actually go out and do it. Lord, let us be reminded and reassured by your grace for us so we don't turn into Pharisees. Bless us in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.